Hello. Before we dive into this week's Working It podcast, I wanted to let you know about a free FT virtual event. I'm hosting a live chat about handling your finances, talking to my FT colleague, Claire Barrett, host of the Money Clinic podcast on Friday, April the 21st. Claire will be talking about her new book, What They Don't Teach You About Money, and it's packed with tips on how to manage your personal finances. You can register for free online and put your questions to us ahead of the event. Just visit ft.com forward slash money event to reserve your virtual ticket. If you are preaching inclusivity and diversity and fronting all of these campaigns, but you don't hold your own senior leadership to account or you allow, routinely allow transgressions to happen, then all of that is for naught because culture isn't a slogan on the wall. It's not the campaigns you front. It's how you behave every day to your colleagues. Hello, and welcome to Working It from the Financial Times with me, Isabel Berwick. The voice you just heard was Anne Franca. She's chief executive at the UK's Chartered Management Institute. And I was talking to her about how organisations can go about turning around a toxic workplace culture. So how can leaders fix workplaces where things have gone very publicly wrong? It's a question being asked right now at the UK's leading business lobby organisation, the CBI. It's reeling from the firing of its leader over sexual harassment claims. And three other employees have been suspended over separate allegations of sexual misconduct and harassment within the group. We'll come back to Anne Frank a little later. But first, let's hear from Frances Fry. She's a Harvard Business School professor and has personal experience of working with top companies after a crisis. Back in 2017, she was brought in to sort out the ride-hailing app Uber. It was in turmoil. A former employee called Susan Fowler had made accusations of sexual harassment and mismanagement in a blog post that went viral and had a huge global impact. Susan Fowler was named the FT's most notable person of the year in 2017. Frances left her prestigious academic post at Harvard to go into Uber and work as its senior vice president for leadership and strategy. I left Harvard, which I never thought I would, to go there uh, and help it navigate its very public crisis. Did they ask you in? Oh, yes. And indeed, I said no upon first being asked because I read everything in the newspaper and I was like, "What? I don't help bad people win. I only help good people win. Um, and I was suspicious. But then after meeting with everyone, and, and I met with 1,500 employees of the 13,000. So I met a lot to convince myself of two things. One, that they were genuinely good people. And two, that what I could do could be helpful. Um, and when I was convinced of that, I switched from Harvard to Uber full-time. Could you paint a sort of picture for the listeners of what, what you found when you got there and what you did first? So the culture was damaged. And so went in there to find out what's the root of the problem. Like, is the root of the problem, it's you know, bad apples? Like, is it bad people behaving badly? And if you have that, you need exorcism for it. There's there's not a redemption story there. If there's good people behaving badly, culture can fix that. And so we wanted to see if it was sort of intentional bad behavior or unintentional or more systemic bad behavior. And what we found that it would happen to be the case at Uber is that while we did separate with 20 people in June of 2017, it was 20 out of 13,000. 
And so the culture was completely turned around with largely the same people. And there were two roots of the problem that we found. One is that Uber had a, uh, what we would call a, a, a serious empathy wobble. So Uber was not very empathetic to the drivers, was not very empathetic to the regulators, was not necessarily empathetic to the shareholders. And so it had it had one problem manifesting in lots of different ways, which is actually comforting to me because you can solve it once and then apply it more times. So they had a, an empathy problem on trust. It also, when we looked at the complaints in the organization, well north of 95% of them um, could be categorized as interactions that somebody was having with their direct manager. And so there were 3,000 direct managers at the time. So we were either going to find, you know, 3,000 bad people or we were going to find a system where no one had ever been trained and taught on how to be a manager. And management is a skill. The Harvard Business School, we think it's a skill that you can readily teach. Um, but and, and so what we found is that new junior people were hired as individual contributors because of the hyper growth of the organization. Five minutes later, they were promoted to managers. And five minutes after that, they were promoted to managers of managers. So we had all of these people who had never been taught how to manage. And so when the complaints were there, I mean, again, very few bad people, <clears throat> but people didn't systematically know how to manage. So we, we just like flooded the place with a very large influx of education, of how to lead what are the fundamentals of of management? Was it a long, drawn-out process? A lot of people and a lot of organizations make the mistake of, this is really big, so it's going to take a long time, and it's simply wrong. This is really big, it's really important, and thus, we need to do it with urgency. And we did at Uber. The culture was turned around, I would say, completely in nine months, um, and you would never hear of the problems that they had uh, again, and that has sustained with, you know, the wonderful leadership of Dara Khajrashahi and all of the other people at the organization. That's what happened at Uber. So Dara Khajrashahi was the CEO brought in a few months after you joined. And one blog by a former engineer kicked off all the troubles at Uber. And in the UK, the CBI business trade body, you know, one woman initially came forward with sexual harassment allegations and the dominoes started from there. Francis, do you think all organizations are just one whistleblower away from a massive loss of trust? No, uh, but I would say that all organizations that haven't been deliberate and attentive to their culture probably are. So that's, I think, the issue. I would like people to do fire prevention. I get brought in a lot for firefighting. But if you do fire prevention, you'll never have to firefight. So what should organizations be doing to prevent a fire breaking out in the first place? I would say if you want a quick fix, there is a technology that's called Vault Technologies. And what it does is it allows people to record any, like they can submit any problem that they're having. And so you need a really robust submission system. The issue for this one on sexual harassment and, and worse is that a lot of women or people for whom it happens to, we don't want to be responsible for ruining somebody else's career. And we also think we're the only one. If we knew there were others, we would surely take action, but we don't know there are others. And so many of us are hesitant. 
So what Vault Technologies did is they created this feature, which is called Go Together. It just means you can create, like if something happened, you can real time take pictures of it and it's great technology and, you know, screen chat and take notes and all of that. But you don't actually submit it to the company. You submit it so it's time stamped into, <laughs> into the a cloud. And it doesn't get released to the company until there are additional similar complaints. I think that's a beautiful thing to do as a quick fix. And so that keen insight has been an amazing breakthrough. Yeah, so the harnessing technology to improve corporate culture. Yes. I would say that in my experience, um, there are very few bad apples at the root of these sorts of things. Um, and there are very large systemic challenges. And I have never, ever met anyone who, after they've done a successful turnaround, has said, I wish I had done less and I wish I had taken longer. So please do it all and begin right now. So that's one inside story of how Francis Fry went into Uber and helped turn the culture around. But I wanted to know why these problems emerge in the first place. And I spoke to Anne Franca from the Chartered Management Institute. She's also been a senior executive at a number of big blue chip companies. And she's been watching events unfold at the CBI. I mean, it's sort of extraordinary how something that appears to be well-managed and inclusive can suffer such a collapse in trust. Have you seen that happen before? And, and what's underlying that? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting illustration of something that we all know, but we don't often see brought into such sharp relief. Now, the CBI, as we know, has campaigned extensively for inclusive leadership, for diversity. They front a number of campaigns and do some really quite excellent thought leadership and research in this area. But the bottom line is that culture is about behavior. And if you are preaching inclusivity and diversity and fronting all of these campaigns, but you don't hold your own senior leadership to account or you allow, routinely allow transgressions to happen, then all of that is for naught because culture isn't a slogan on the wall. It's not the campaigns you front. It's how you behave every day to your colleagues and this is especially true for senior managers and leaders. You create the culture and you are responsible and accountable for whether or not it's actually observed in everyday behaviors. And that's the real um, paradox of the CBI, which makes this situation all the more difficult. So in the case of the CBI and other instances I've seen, there's been a lot of talk on social media about woke washing, in inverted commas. So that's essentially the difference between what this organisation is saying in public, its commitments to diversity and inclusion, particularly in the case of the CBI that was very strong on this, and what was actually alleged to be going on. What would you say to listeners about that? I think you call this the say-do gap, don't you, Anne? Bingo, Isabel. It's the yeah. say-do gap. And uh, this is a classic case of that say-do gap in action. And boy, look at the repercussions when, you know, you get that wrong in a big way. Uh, but alas, I would love to say it's unique to this instance, but it is not. CMI's research has found that um, this is very widespread, that the majority of managers will say, of course, my organization is inclusive when it comes to X, you know, 
gender equity, racial equity, whatever it is. Um, but then you say, okay, so can you tell me one concrete thing you're doing about it? And suddenly, you know, the percentage of people that say their organization is inclusive, maybe 90%, but less than 25% can name any specific instance of something going on. So really what our collective responsibility uh, as organizations is no matter where we're working and what we're doing, do our bit to close that say-do gap so that we actually walk our own talk. Is, is the answer to take these things out of a specific diversity department or HR and make them sit with individual managers? I completely endorse that. At CMI, we believe that it is the responsibility of every competent leader and manager to do exactly that. It's part of how you lead and manage every day. It is not HR's job, but it's not the DEI person's job. It's your job. How are you behaving? How are you uh, including your team? How are you role modeling good behavior? And how are you dealing swiftly and robustly with bad behavior? And looking longer term, you know, more generally, how can leaders start to repair trust when it's been broken? What would you advise people listening to this to do? Well, it isn't easy. It's one of the most difficult things to do to restore trust. And it takes um, it takes time and it takes a lot of effort and concerted effort. And it has to be above all sincere. And, you know, I think it has to start with acknowledging we've lost trust. Um, we need to take a very hard look at ourselves. We need to listen and find out what's really going on. We need to make sure that we, as the leaders of the organization, are understanding what is the everyday lived experience of the people working in this organization and others, and how are we going to hold ourselves to account to these values and slogans in our annual report in terms of our everyday behavior. And in that regard, Isabel, I think, you know, we all like to highlight aspects of good behavior. But the real test of trust is how do you deal with the bad behavior? Because that's what sticks in so many employees' minds is, you know, how did they let that person or group get away with that? And that is very damaging to trust. So there'd be a lot of people listening to this who, you know, might be terrified that there are things going on in their organizations that they don't know about or that have been hushed up in particular departments. You know, can a well-managed company still suffer a reputational crisis or scandal? Well, of course they can. And, and you know, the thing is, one of the, one of the characteristics of culture that will help to mitigate this is openness and transparency. And that's where you create a situation where managers and leaders at every level know that they are not only um, encouraged, but expected to raise things that aren't right. And in so many organizations, there's a fear that, oh gosh, if I highlight this, it's going to have bad repercussions for me. My career will suffer. This is why a lot of women do not report, for example, sexual harassment, because they feel, and unfortunately they are often right, that nothing will be done about it and that it will somehow boomerang back onto them. 
And the best thing that you can do if you're trying to create a culture of trust is to make absolutely clear that that's not going to happen and that you want people to come to you with the problems at warts and all, and not just with the good news, and that those problems, if they are serious, will be dealt with swiftly. And that means that you have to deal with toxicity. So the takeaways here are that leaders have to walk the talk with regard to ethical behaviour. And if you're making claims about diversity and inclusion and equality, you have to actually perform those within the company. It's not enough to put them on your website or have your HR department have meetings about them. You know, it doesn't seem that hard, but apparently it is. Now, how do you open up your culture so that people can talk freely? I was particularly taken with the preventive measure that Francis talked about, which is, you know, using technology to help people report misdeeds. Yeah, I think this is going to really transform things because the culture of whistleblowing is, you know, it's very hard to bring allegations against your manager. And changing corporate culture can be done. And as Anne said, some leaders will have to leave. But most people want to do the right thing. They might be caught up in an unethical company culture, but they want to do the right thing. And if leaders can show them that way, I think, you know, a lot of these problems could be avoided. My thanks to Francis Fry and Anne Frank for this episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please do get in touch with us. We're at workingit at ft.com or I'm Isabel Berwick on LinkedIn. If you're an FT subscriber, please sign up for our Working It newsletter. We've got the best workplace and management stories from across the FT. Sign up at ft.com forward slash newsletters. This episode of Working It was produced by Audrey Tinlin. The executive producer is Manuela Saragossa, with mix from Jake Fielding. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's head of audio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>